Hello, my name is Thomas Shellwise, and welcome to the Thomas Life and Coffee podcast. The podcast is about stories of overcomers, and today we have Allison Zimmerman joining us with her amazing story and with what she is doing now with that story. Allison, and I'm going to make sure I get all this correct, you're, the, you're an author of a children's book that we're going to talk about later, but it's an amazing book I feel like really needs to be out there. You're a drug and alcohol counselor, but more, more importantly, you started the only two recovery centers in Guam, which is amazing. That's the alcohol, the the drug and alcohol rehab centers. I'm assuming I'm getting that right. So that's amazing. And then of course in Guam on top of that. Yeah. How are we doing today? We are well, and thank you for inviting me to this um, podcast. Yeah. I'm excited to have you on it and you know what, we're going to, we'll just jump right into it. So obviously the biggest reason why you're on here is because you're an overcomer yourself and you have an overcoming story. Why don't you just go ahead and and start to share with us. Okay, well, thank you. So you mentioned my book and I have a picture here. It's called Good People. It is my response to childhood sexual abuse. And it's in this book is all the things I wish I knew but didn't. And um, so it's sort of my going back and thinking about my own children, my own grandchildren. I didn't write this book until after my, my seven grandchildren were born, but I did manage to protect my five children. And it's, it's basically just my, my, what you wish you knew before you knew it in a very gentle way, you know, who are good people and who are good people in our world. And there are certain things good people don't do. Like they don't make you keep secrets. And they don't take you away from the group to touch you. So obviously, this is not just about good people. This is about the story of overcoming. But this is one way that I turned a very painful portion of my history into something that might benefit other people. And if it keeps children safe, yay, we've done a good job. Thanks for sharing your book with us, Allison. So let's get into the story. Where do we start? So I'm at what might be considered by many as the pinnacle of my career. We're successful in what we're doing. Good People was at the publisher. And I was in the Philippines. I've actually been a missionary for 30 years in the Pacific Islands. And I was in the Philippines and I got the call that nobody ever wants to get. And it was from someone that I'd never met. It actually was my son's boyfriend. And it it was a broken person saying, your son's gone under the wheels of a dump truck and it's really bad. He was at the hospital and because he wasn't related to my son, they wouldn't give him any information, which meant I couldn't get him any information. My son was literally, they'd been on a date and they were going to Wendy's. They were hungry and he saw the dump truck lurching forward, pushed his boyfriend out of the way and he took the full impact. So he went under the front wheels. It had a snow plow on the front of it. This was DC in November and it drug him along the, the ground and then the back wheels went over him. So he, he took the full weight of the truck, top and bottom, miraculously not crushing his head 
I mean, that would have just been the end of it. There wouldn't have been any more of the beautiful person that I call my son. It was a hit and run. And that for me was just so hard. I couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that my beautiful boy had been left on the side of the road like a piece of garbage. That was unfathomable to me. And so my life changed in an instant as life sometimes does. So this is a podcast about overcoming and our regular life is not always a vision of great overcoming. Maybe if we have anxiety, if we have depression and every day is hard work. Well, I courageous people that get up every day and face things that they have to face. But on this occasion, my life was going well. I was with friends in the Philippines, happy, happy. And you get the call that nobody wants to get. I'm grateful for the people that I was with. They're praying people. What was that vehicle became a prayer play. Like it became a chapel because we all cried out to God in the hopes that my son would be saved in the hopes that he would make it. He stayed in a coma, so it was critical condition. My son's boyfriend couldn't get a hold of anyone. I had just made him my Facebook friend because I thought anyone that's going to be in my boy's life is going to be in my life. I want to I wanna keep, he was young, just new at college from the islands. I wanted to keep that, those lines of communication open. And so I found a way and gave him some numbers to call my daughter who also lived in DC. Well, what ensued was a comedy of errors. My daughter sleeps very heavily and had her phone turned off. That wasn't working. Her roommate is deaf. Mm -hmm. So I said, you need to call the deaf roommate because her phone will vibrate. And, but obviously you can't talk to her. So you have to call her. You have to send her a text to tell her that you're going to be calling her. You call vibrate so that she wakes up so she can go and get my daughter who's a very heavy sleeper. Uh, my daughter almost kicked her across the room and ah, this is person in my room. And obviously it, it led everyone's world changed on that day. It was November 21st, 2015. Yeah, everything changed. Okay. Yeah, I can't even I can't even imagine. So you guys were on the mission field and your son obviously had graduated from high school and had decided to come back to the States. How long had he been in the States before this? this so event? he did a couple of years of community college and he was actually studying at Gallaudet University, which is a deaf university. He's a hearing student. And as a hearing student, he was at Gallaudet. And he had been there about nine months to a year, maybe. I'm not quite sure. Okay. Yeah, nine months to it. It was his second year of being there. Okay. So, so who, who was he before the accident? Just describe this uh, the son before the accident. He was kind, tender. He loves uh, climbing. He, like he was a hiker. He was an adventurer. He was a guide. His personality has always been, particularly if I'm climbing with him, if I'm hiking with him, he's the guy that can climb it and double back, but he's the one that waits for the weaker ones to make the climb too. And so he's that guy, smart, nerdy, 
you know, an incredible human being. And these are all thoughts that come up when you're in the space between will he live or will he die? Right. Now, these are the, the thoughts, the how life changes in an instant and, and how some of the things that you've hoped and dreamed for may never be your reality because of one man's foolish behavior. So when this happened, I mean, you obviously told me the process that you, they had to go through to let this, the daughter know. And, and then you talked about how the, what the, how the community responded to this. What was going on with you personally? Well, I'm devastated. And when you get that kind of news, you can't really wrap your mind around it. But honestly, truly, the, the, what I really couldn't get over was he was left like a piece of garbage. And I, I wrote to a friend, my beautiful boy left like a piece of garbage on the side of the road. That is unfathomable. And I very much was praying as most people would do, like, like they say, there's no unbelievers in foxholes. This was a foxhole. I was not an unbeliever. And I think I'm grateful that I had an established relationship with my God, that I could, in my weakness, in my fear, I could cry out to him and just ask him to come through and to not let what looked like the inevitable be, be our reality. And it's so hard to be so far away and one of your children is suffering. And I was a, a halfway across the world and my kid was dying in the hospital. So at one point, my, I, I got back from the Philippines to our home on Guam because I was actually at a speaking engagement in the Philippines. And it was Thanksgiving week. Well, you don't just get off an island in the middle of Thanksgiving. It it's, can be logistic nightmare. You know, this is a tiny place with one or two planes leaving every day. So my husband managed to get me a plane. This happened on our Saturday and he managed to get me on a plane. So it would have happened on your Sunday because it's the other side of the world, the day after Thanksgiving. But by the time he got me a plane ticket, I was, I felt like I was about to pop. And you're being so far away and you don't really know all the facts. People are calling you and telling you and trying to communicate. You know, they want me to, do, do we sign a DNR? Do we, do we pull the plug? Do we, will he lose his leg? Will he lose his arm? He's going to lose his spleen. I mean, these things are the things that nightmares are made of. In fact, the funny thing is, he, we together, him and I are watching ER right now, the old television show. Right, right. And every worst case scenario that comes through the door has a piece of his bigger puzzle. But he just had the whole Megillah all together, all at once. And, you know, so I felt it, it's a very powerless place. There was nothing I could do but pray, which I did. It was very scary. So how long a plane ride is that from where you were to the U.S.? Okay, uh, a long plane ride, <laughs> depending which route you go. But if you go to Japan, there's a 13-hour plane ride to Chicago. So from Japan, it's, there's an, you can get there in, it was like 
four hours to Japan and maybe 13 hours to Chicago and then however long it took to get back to and I'll be honest, I don't even know which route I took. I just pulled one of the routes out of my mind. But okay. one, one of them is an 11-hour flight to the States. One of them is a... But one of the ways to go is you take a flight to Hawaii, which is seven and a half hours. And then from Hawaii, you go to help wherever, you know, D.C., wherever you're going. Okay. Yeah. It's a long way. <laughs> so it was a long trip. A long <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I got to the States remembering that I had never um, lived there for more than just over a year at a time. I'm born in England. I got to the United States with a suitcase and the name of a hospital. I didn't even own a winter coat and it was November. Mm. And so it, this was a big thing that we were moving into. Wow. Okay. I, I took a taxi. <laughs> Right. So he's so he's in a coma at this point. Is that right? Thank so God. A medically induced coma, I'm assuming. I don't know. Yeah. So he's in a coma and now you finally get there. Hopefully you get a jacket at some point. I, I, uh, I got to the hospital. I and I they dropped me off at the emergency room because it was late at night. I'd been flying all, you know, all since my time, 4 a.m. 4 I got to the airport. And this is now 10, 11 o'clock at night with a huge time difference. Right. And I said, my son was in here. And because it was, it had happened kind of recently, like within a week, they knew exactly who I was. And they directed me upstairs to the ICU which is where he was. And I'm still very much alone in this process. And I've got my suitcase, I've got my carry on, and I'm in trepidation going up to the ICU because you don't know what you're going to face. You don't know what's he going to look like. I mean, will he have tubes and wires, which seems to be the thing that people talk about. I mean, tubes and wires, lifelines to life. Thank God for those things. But yeah, I didn't know what I would face. It, it, it was a big deal. And he was, when I did, I got there, that there's quite a protocol to get into the ICU. They don't just let anyone walk through the doors. And, you know, they were very gracious to me. And I got to go into his room. And one thing that I had felt in my preparation was I really feel like God had told me to take my favorite perfume, my perfume. It was perfume that I'd used his whole growing up as he was a child. But when I would go on trips away, he would always take whatever clothing I had just worn and it, it, he put it by his pillow so he could smell my smell. And I felt really that I needed to take, take my smell with me. And that actually, when he did finally wake up, was one of the first things he said to me after they took the trach tube out. You smell good. <laughs> and it was like, ah, oh, this is my son. He's come back. So he did not come out of the coma until probably a week after I got there. But one of the doctors has actually said that when I got there is when the turning point, that he was fully critical until I got there. And when I got there, that's when things began to change for him. So, and I'm trying to, and I'm, I'm just trying to make sure I understand the timeline. So from the time it happened to the time you got there, how long was that? So it was about a week. Yeah, it was a week. So it was a week from the time that it happened to the time you got there. And then he was in a coma for another week after that. 
at so, least, maybe more. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So and then, so, so we're obviously half the world is praying because we're connected globally, and the prayers of half the world were beginning to be answered. They were in the process of being answered in that in that ICU room. Right. So, so that so he wakes up. Obviously, an amazing, amazing moment there when he wakes up. What is the what is the process after that? What is what happens? Uh, before he wakes up, he still has the tubes in, so he's intubated and he's hooked up fully. And one of the nurses asked him a question, and and he went like this. And sign language. Remember, he is a student at a college whose primary language is sign. In fact, Gallaudet, they teach in sign. And, and so no is this, it's a, it's a nice little, and, and he, the question, they pose a question to him. We didn't even know he's awake yet. And he did this. And I said, he's talking. <laughs> and they look at me like, lady, you are having a hallucination. And I said, no, he answered your question. In sign language, this is no, just one, you know, no. And I said, he did this, he, he did this. It was imperceptible, but the hand, I was holding his hand. The hand of a mother knows these things. And I said, he said, no. So they asked him a question that he would say yes to. I don't remember what it was. And this is yes. So it's like a, a little, if you're knocking on a table or something, and this is no. And, and to the, the new question, he sort of did this. It was very small, but it was different. My son was speaking. He was coming back to life. And I'm grateful was using the language of his heart. He was, he was signing to speak to us. But, you know, there were a few minutes there where they thought, oh, this lady's off her rocket now. <laughs> and, yeah. So that happened. And he still was intubated for a while before they could take the tubes out because there's certain tests they have to do about oxygen levels and et cetera, et cetera. He was, if they left his hands free though, his hand would go up and he would pull his tubes out. All right. Like he would pull the tube that was, and, and putting that thing back is not fun. And so they would restrain him. And we've had some funny conversations about this because they'd restrain him. And if I was with him, I would say, please let, let him not be restrained. I'm right here. I mean, I was with him most of the time, but there were like, I would go out to the waiting room and sleep on a plastic chair uh, because in the ICU, there's no bed chairs or anything. You, you're just, and, and so that was my home. So you said I would get a jacket. Well, I didn't get a jacket. I stayed in the hospital. Right, right. Well, it must have been more than two weeks because two weeks in, I said to my, oh, I, when I got there, I said to my husband, you know, if this thing goes south, you're not the dad that didn't come. And so when I got there, he was still in the balance. And I said, you, you wouldn't live with yourself if you don't make the trip, which again is a $2,000 investment, which when it's your kid on the line, that's not the end of the world. But we, he was looking at this as an economist, this might get expensive. And I said, yeah, but you're not the dad that didn't come. And so he came within that first two weeks and my son does not remember him being there. 
And then he went back to Guam because we had a lot of responsibilities. And he went back to Guam and then came back at Christmas time. And that's when my son knew that his dad had come. And that was a very beautiful reunion, which I managed to get on video. It was really very special because he didn't know that his dad had been there. Right. And it was really special. So then that obviously starts the process after the wreck of the recovery. How long was the recovery for this? I mean, I'm sure still he's probably recovering. Yeah, yeah, we're still recovering. On And there are some things that will never go back to the way they were. Right. And isn't that life, though? I mean, there's the initial impetus of the event that throws us into turmoil. And then you, you have to create a new normal. And so today we have a new normal. You know, we had to get an apartment in that country. I'm not from that country. I've never had to navigate life in that country, this country. And so there were lots of things that were going on on many different levels to fight for rehab because his body was too broken for rehab, but too good. Like his strength had returned he was non-weight bearing for three months. And so he could, the only thing that could work was his right hand. His left arm and shoulder was non-weight bearing. Both legs were non-weight bearing. He was completely shattered from the waist down. So he's completely rebuilt from the waist down and this shoulder was rebuilt. And so they were going to send us well, the options were they said, well, we'll send you home. And I said, like, what home? I don't have a home. And they said, well, we'll send him to a nursing home. Mm. I'm like, over my dead body, what is a 21-year-old boy going to learn in a nursing home except have intermittent skilled care? Right. You know, people are busy in nursing. I said, he'll be a card shark, but I'm not sure if that's all the destiny that's on this boy's life. I'm believing for more. So My husband came back, got us an apartment, which naively we thought he'd be back in school. He'd be, but we didn't know at this point, will he walk? Will he, how much of his brain function is there because there was a traumatic brain injury. His whole body was affected by this event. Right. Yeah. How long was it? So was he in the hospital for then for that three months? Yeah, he was in hospital. Uh, They send us away just before so he was non-weight bearing three months after we got back to the apartment okay yeah so the clock didn't start kicking ticking until a little while later so it was longer than three months but yeah and then he did get to a point that he could start the rehab the physical therapy yeah but I had to fight for it because they don't usually typically you don't get rehab if you're coming from home you get rehab if you're coming from hospital Uh, and so we're in this weird space where he's too good for the hospital the critical care unit and not good enough that's the wrong way to put it but too injured for rehab because to put him in rehab too early would not have been a good idea either you know, it was a balancing act. And so to be honest with you, I had to fight the system to get his needs met. And in the end, he only ended up going to rehab, actual inpatient rehab for a week. Wow. Yeah, he only went for a week. And but the other part of that is 
my new world was his world. So whatever he needed, I mean, we worked it together and yeah. So for him to get to, and, and I don't know, probably the best way to say this, but just to a functioning where he could do majority of the things back that he's doing now on his own. How long was that process? Well, intermittently. So it's been a gradual process. At three months, they, once they decided he was weight bearing, we went to outpatient rehab. And so he had to learn to walk again. Happy days, because we didn't know if he could walk again, because there were also some spinal fractures that went, like I said, his whole body was affected. So he had to learn to walk again. He with a brain injury, there's, there's lots of components to that. So he went to rehab for that as well. And this is before inpatient. And I mean, there are still things today that he can't do that he did do, but we are not where we were. Okay. Yeah. All right. What was the year that that happened, that accident? 2015. And so going into 2016, we was when the big work happened. So obviously he's in a wheelchair and because he's so tall, he at the time was six, seven. He's not now, he's lost some height, but you know, he had to have a special wheelchair that basically it was like pushing a, a gurney down the street because uh, okay. uh, it was long and he had to lay down. So he was almost laying down. It was like this. And I'm, I'm pushing that thing. And, and I, one thing that was in my mind was our situation right now is devastating. It looks like our, much of our life, life as we knew it will never be the same again. But I need to show my boy that there's life outside of the walls of our apartment. And so every single day I took him out somewhere. I walked to Walmart. It was an outing. So, you know, I wanted to create the fact that the world is, the world hasn't stopped and we will engage the world even on these terms. Okay. Yeah. 2016 and he was going, so that you said that was the year that most of the work happened. A lot of the work happened. I mean, as it, again, it's still ongoing. We're we're still working the work and doing the things, but I, I want to happily report that five years after the accident my son re-enrolled in college all right yeah Yeah. that's recent that's brand new but he's just re-enrolled he's changed his major to do something that when there's a brain injury there's a lot of stuff that goes into that so he's changed his major to something that's easier to dip his toes back into the field of education with back at Gallaudet okay and doing it online. And I think the thing is, we've taken it at the pace that's been appropriate for us. Because when tragedy hits people, like I have a very dear friend whose, her story's real different to mine. Her son was a rock climber, setting the stakes in a rock for a climb the next day. They went to see him And the last thing the dad said was, I love you, son. And he looked over his shoulder and I love you too, dad. They came to see the, what he was doing and he fell and he never recovered. And so the thing that I think about is this, you need to take as long as you need to take in your wellness journey. My journey is not going to take the same amount of time as yours. 
yours is not going to be the same as mine. We can't put people on our own timeline. And so, yeah, we need it. It needs to take as long as it needs to take for us. And there's no judgment because nobody else is walking your shoes. And yeah, but hopefully we, we won't give up and we'll keep pressing through. So how, how much longer did you guys, you and your husband, stay or at this point, I'm sure it's your husband who's still on taking. He's still on Guam. So it took because the nature of our work and it, I was gone instantly, essentially. I was gone a week after. And with the nature of our work, it took him three and a half years to hand off what was the Oasis Empowerment Center into local hands. And the handoff took three and a half years. Okay. So I lived with my son in an apartment in DC. Then my husband came. So we're five years in. Right. And when my husband came, he my my son was stable enough to be moved. Because the reason we didn't take him back to Guam was it just wasn't medically, it wasn't an appropriate um, environment for him to be in. His needs were really big. And physically in the beginning, he wouldn't have survived the trip. And so we made the decision, my husband would stay home and work. And um, then, then he ended up coming three and a half years later. And then you guys, from that point, made the move. Made the move to California. We have, we, we, again, naively thought that we might get back to the islands. And when we do, and I do believe that we still will, when we do, we want the right environment around my son. We want him to be near families. My daughter, the one that lived in DC, her husband's a doctor. And so they moved um, for his work. And we have a daughter that lives in Redding, California married to a, a man from the area. And so we thought, well, there. when you don't grow up in this country, you, you're not as rooted as maybe some people that did grow up in this country. So I can't really expect my kids to be anywhere specifically, right. except she has ties to the, the area in California that we're staying in. Yeah. Okay. And you. So that's how we landed here. All right. And you've been here how long? About... Two and a half years, actually. Two and a half years. Yeah, we're going into we're going into this is year six that we're entering of this journey. Right. Okay. Well, so your son before we talked about who he was before the accident. What would you say the differences are? Obviously, besides the physical. Mm -hmm. What is so? The I'm happy to report that he we together hiked down the Grand Canyon. Okay. And back, and he helped me get back up. Like he did not drag me, but he waited for me to be, you know, to, to do it on my time. He's an old soul. He okay. has the mind of someone who has suffered much, but right. he hasn't let it um, hold him back. He is not, it's not normal that your 25 year old son is gonna wait for you to make the mountain when he can just do it and he let other people do it. And so he knows what it is to suffer in life. And he is used his using his suffering as a part of his strength. And physical fitness has been a real big part of his comeback journey. Okay. He was broken. And as soon as he was free to move, to do, to be, he moved, did, and was. 
as soon as he was allowed to lift a five pound weight, by golly, he lifted that five pound weight. As soon as he was allowed to, whatever he was allowed to do, he worked his ass off to do it. And so I see determination. I see a courage that not many 22-year-olds have had to face. Obviously, he was 22 when, when the event happens. And I listen to him sometimes and the wisdom that he operates out of, I feel is a very rare wisdom, but it's a wisdom born of suffering. It's a wisdom born of someone who has had to work for where he is right now. And, and where he is right now is in a place that most people take for granted. He knows constant chronic pain. Mm -hmm. Yes, he hikes down the mountain. He never complains. So in how has he changed? He's deeper. The well is deeper. Sounds the water like is sweeter. So I remember you were talking about when he was in the hospital and, and you had said that your your hopes for your son, the, the destiny that he has, what are those from a mother's perspective? From a mother's perspective, I'm really grateful that he's enrolled in school because he always was one of my nerdy little kids. I have five children. And okay. so he was one of, I have five children and they're a nerdy little bunch, but he he really, in terms of the future, I want him to be all that he wants to be. That may sound like a cop-out. And maybe as we're talking, you know, when you don't know that you can count on tomorrow, you live right where you're at right today. And it's enough. And so that's what I'm gleaning from that question is that I don't know that I have big dreams. Actually, I do believe that within a year, he'll probably relocate back to DC. Okay. Re-enroll in person. But of course, the world has changed a ton. It's very convenient for us that during lockdown, he, he's going back to school. So I, I'm supporting him. We're supporting him through this phase of going back to school. It was kind of an experiment. And we just said, you know, try it. It might work for you. If it doesn't, what have you lost? And I think that's been a part of his journey. He's been willing to try, try hard things. He's been willing to try intimidating things without judgment. And so, so if this works for you, it works. And if it doesn't, what have you lost? It's just an experiment. What's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is you say, this is not for me. I can't do this right now. We press stop. And if we want to reevaluate it in the future, then that's what we do. But at this point, we can do today what we can do today. Right. So my role has been kind of gently putting opportunities, presenting opportunities and without judgment, letting him find the inner strength to choose the path ahead. So yes, he is, yes, he's, I, I believe he'll be going back to school. There was an issue where the driver of the truck went to court and we asked for mediation. And maybe this is a story for another day. And if it is, feel free. Cause well, all right, go ahead. Okay. So we asked for restorative justice. And in DC, they said, oh, we don't do that for adult cases. So my husband said, well, why not let this be the first one? And it felt like, you know, we, we're coming from a Christian base 
And it felt like spiritually, we got to do something in the halls of justice. We got to, we got to have a voice that wasn't formally afforded to people in this situation. So we did restorative justice with him. And then he went to trial for the criminal case against him, which we had nothing to do with. Obviously, we were witnesses, but we weren't driving the criminal case. And so when, when you've been a victim of a brutal crime, and this was a brutal crime, you get to have a voice, and it's called a victim's impact statement. And so we read our victim's impact statement, and basically we told him we forgave him, that We are people that walk under the forgiveness of a loving God that we've been forgiven. And we extended the same gift to the man that ran my son over. My son was, he also gave a victim's impact statement. He went to the front of the courtroom and it was very powerful and, you know, very poignant for me because his his first words were, I I didn't write anything down. I used to. I used to be able to write things down, but I can't now. And he then went on to say how he also forgave the man that had committed this crime against him. So it was pretty powerful. And maybe that's a topic for another day. The lady at the, the interpreter, because this man was using an interpreter, she came up to me afterwards and said, can I have that? I've never read anything like that in court and it's touched her heart. She came up in tears. And so the the layers of people that this event has touched and it's not over, you know, I had some people, my son is gay and I'm actually writing a book about for Christians or for anyone about loving your, your kid, your kid, your gay kids, because I think typically we haven't done that well as a church and it was my son that said mommy you should write a book Mm. about loving your gay kids because he's got friends whose story is so very different from his own i would say if i could step in there for a second i would say that i 100 percent agree with you on that that topic i just i don't think that as a community whether it's just what's been shown on that community or whether We've actually done that where we haven't really loved that area of our humanity well at all. We have not in from who we've been commanded to be and what we've been commanded to do. Like that it seems like it fits in the in our realm of what we should be doing. So I really applaud you for that. Well, I mean, it's a privilege to be frank. Yeah. It is a privilege. The life of my child, the life of all my children is a privilege. But I, I think what you're saying, I think we've loved the only way we knew how, and that was with judgment. Right. And that wasn't the way of Jesus. No, you're right. You're absolutely right on that. It, Jesus didn't love with judgment. He said, judge not, lest you yourselves be judged. And we have not done a good job as a church. I, before this book, I'm interviewing quite a few people. And one of them says, we missed our, our moment. As a church, we missed it. We did not pick up the baton when we could have. And a lot of lives are being destroyed because of it. So, right. yeah, oh. but that's a, a, a deep well for another day, my it, friend. It <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing that. And I know that because it's, it's, it's part of your life. And, and, uh, but it's, it's a message that needs to get out there. And, you know, we can expound on that on, on another, another time. 
So you have plans to go back to the island? Yeah, well, to to Asia. To Asia. We're, yes, we will we will domicile in the Philippines and go out from that space, really serving people who may have suffered. Suffering has a way of changing you to where you can enter into the pain of others. And if if we're wise, we don't relegate their pain to our pain. Because sometimes, you know, you're, you're having a hard time and someone comes along and says, oh, I know exactly how you feel. But you see, when you've stood at your child's bedside, not knowing if he's going to live or die, you are aware that no, you don't know how I'm going to feel. You had your experience and your feelings, but it's like a rainbow. Every single person that looks at a rainbow sees a different rainbow. No one person sees the same rainbow because we're all looking at it from a different place. And so being able to enter into people's pain and suffering with them and being strength, whatever that means. And for each person, it will mean something different. So yes, we intend to, it is our belief that we'll go back and we're excited about that, but no firm plans yet. I, I'm feeling that probably within about a year and a half, particularly when my son is settled, we're, we're gonna do this properly with him. We are not just, we've walked with him this whole way. We've been strength. One day he will be to the point where he won't need that strength because his, that which is within him is enough. Right. We'll always have a unique and very special relationship, which I'm grateful for. But yeah. That's, I didn't say very much to this, uh, this conversation we had today because there was just so much stuff. I mean, there's so much great, amazing stuff that you're sharing in this story. And I can just tell by watching you like, this you're telling this in in a and I want to be very I want to say this right when I hear your story like you are definitely not a victim mm, definitely thanks. telling it from this from a a platform of victory mm-hmm. like you it's a it's a story even though it's an ongoing story mm-hmm. and yeah. and obviously this is not the first thing you've overcome like you had to overcome what happened to you personally and growing up and then being able to turn your life to the drug and alcohol counselor and starting and going, becoming a missionary for 30 years and, and starting those recovery centers and then being hit again and being challenged to overcome again. It's, I, I'm blown away. Like I, I, I thought I knew what I was expecting walking into this, but I, I, I was not. This is, this is such an amazing story. And I know when people hear this, they're going to, they're going to be impacted. So is there any final thing you would like to say to somebody who's listening to this podcast? So you mentioned, you know, what, what our conversation and one of the, I started my victims in impact statement with, this is the story of courage in the face of adversity. Oh, wow. And none of us in our family would be where we are if it hadn't have been the fact that we could hold on to God in hard places that just has to be said we are not here today because we white knuckled it through we are here today because god was faithful in the garden of our lives and he knew what it was to be abandoned and and that's one thing about you know around easter time 
people are thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane. And there was a period in my life where I realized that Jesus was qualified to come into the gardens of Gethsemane that we face. He did the work and he knows how to be present to us in hard places. So I'm very grateful for that. I hope that doesn't negate what I've said for people that aren't of, of faith, but I have to say God has been faithful. God has been present. And we are here today in the form that we're here because of the work that he's done in our lives. Right. All right. And, and I think you saying that, I think the, the message that somebody is going to hear, and, and I can only speculate, you know, we all, to a certain degree, have to have something that we believe on, or believe in, especially when things are tough. Like, we have to look towards something. And, and it's, it's amazing with your story. Like, you know, you know who, you, who your father is. You know who you're looking towards. You know why the why, I guess. You know the why. And that is the great, the great I am. That's that's so amazing. So thank you today for taking the time to share with us as that amazing story. I know it's going to impact people's lives. I know that the right people are going to hear this at the right time. And especially from a mother's perspective, how powerful is that? And I, you know, maybe there's a whole nother podcast on forgiveness, but I what I can say is, you know, that no matter how many times I hear something. It's horrible, but just being able to have the same people that were involved that were directly affected to be able to still say, I forgive you, like how powerful is that? Like if our world would be more, get more in line with that, like yeah. what, what, a, what a change we would make. I, but you, thanks for being the example. Well, thank you so much. And uh, don't forget this little book, Good People because we all want to protect the children in our lives. And isn't that really this, the story that we've heard is about a very simple mom doing everything she had to do with the job that she was faced with. And, and so I applaud all the parents out there, all the people out there that are, that are overcoming whatever adversity they face every day, people with depression, people with anxiety, that hope my hope for them is that hope will come in hard places doesn't always come from where you're expecting it to come from but may hope come and uh, yeah yeah so thank you for sharing the book you have the other book coming and when you get that book uh written and ready to go let us know and if you want to send me a link to where they can get a hold of that book i will make it available in the podcast description so they, awesome. can, they can go find that. Thank All you. right, Allison, thank you for taking the time again today and have a, a great rest of the, the day. And please keep us updated on the progress of your son in your journey. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Thomas Life and Coffee podcast. We just heard an amazing story by Allison Zimmerman and we were going to put her link below for the book that she had mentioned a couple of times during the podcast. Also, if you are an overcomer on your own journey and you have a few questions, maybe this podcast resonated with you, or maybe you're just struggling with something, there will be a link below for a free clarity session that you can 
click on and connect with us and we'd be happy to spend some time with you. Also, if you know of an overcomer or maybe you have a, an amazing overcoming story yourself, we'll have a link below that you can click with and we'd love to connect with you and love to learn about your story and see if this is going to be a good fit. All right, have an amazing day.